Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Badams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're after a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show, we go to Tasmania and we meet Fred, the sulphur-crested cockatoo, who is at least 105 years old. Because I remember when I was a kid, went to New Zealand and I was like, oh my God, we're going to see the three-eyed lizards. And then I got there and they were completely two-eyed. King Henry, news from the east. What? The water. It hath creatures. (laughs) Have you seen the Midnight Snapper news? Um, No. Is this a recognised publication? This is in The Guardian. Oh, right, okay. So this is uh, a Midnight Snapper, which is a type of fish, which was caught off Western Australia, has set the new record for the age of a tropical reef fish. At 81 years old. Significant for a fish. My initial question was, how do you know how old a fish is? Yep. I actually found a very interesting answer. So fish have got really small ear bones called otoliths, which continually grow throughout their lives. And have got visible bands like tree rings. That's handy. And the sci- so the scientists were looking at the age of snappers because it's a widely eaten commercial fish. And many snapper species are harvested. And those that are harvested are like 40, 50, and 60 years old. So, like, I don't think I've ever thought about this before. When we're harvesting fish to eat, obviously we talk about overfishing and we talk about all that kind of stuff. But harvesting species that can live as long as humans is pretty, you know, obviously it's got big ramifications for overfishing and when Mm -hmm. these fish get to, like, uh, a sizable age. But, yeah, generally the, the snappers that are being fished to eat are 40, 50, 60 years old but this one is 81 years old that the oldest one but aren't they a snapper is i'm holding my hands up on a completely audio medium aren't they like a foot and a half long when i'm trying to think have i seen them like at a fish market like how big like well, a 50 is... year old fish in my head yeah. is a big f- but i guess tortoises can live for like 100 and they and, stay yeah okay. well speaking about fish and the age of fish because from then, you go down the kind of rabbit hole of looking at other stuff. And I came across a fish called the orange ruffy, yep. which is a cold water deep sea fish, which is also known as the deep sea perch or the slime head. Lovely. Which is nice. Lovely. That is only 35 to 45 centimetres long. So just bigger than your school ruler. Mm-hmm. So in the 1970s, they believed that they only lived for about 30 years or so. But by the 1990s, there was clear evidence that this species lived to an exceptional age. So they did some radiometric dating of trace isotopes found in an orange ruffy's otolith, the ear bone, and that got to 149 years old. Whoa! For a fish that's 35 centimetres long, which is pretty impressive. I take it the fish has to die to get the ear bone. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it can willingly... Well, like, when this started, I was like, oh, nice, we know how old fish are. Oh, yeah. The fish doesn't know how old it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fish did until we finished it. Well, a 35-centimetre fish, its otolith must be tiny. Yeah. And it's a deep-sea fish. It's a deep-sea fish. So Right. So I imagine they're not very easy to get a hold of, a slime head. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to get its otolith out and not... Like, I'm just imagining going to look at it and accidentally, like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I broke the tiny. Well, I broke the tiny ear bone. I think for I think for the things like the snappers, maybe it's easier to do. For the orange ruffy, you take the otolith out, <laughs> but you are doing radiometric dating of the isotopes within it. 
Oh, so you're not counting the rings. So you're not. It's not as simple as counting the rings. Because those rings are being laid down throughout its life, the trace isotopes within them allow you to count back. That makes a lot more sense, because I was like, sure, counting rings in a tree is easy. You still have to cut the tree down. We need to kill a lot of stuff in the quest of working out how old it is. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to learn a lot about that. So... That orange ruffy is currently the oldest age we've got for orange ruffies is 149 years old in our conversation so far. But one specimen was caught 1,500 kilometres east of Wellington in 2015. In New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Was estimated to be over 230 years old. Estimated they didn't take a look and be like, we have caught this. I estimate this to be 230 years old. Put it back. (laughs) (laughs) But there was one caught near Tasmania, which was aged at 250 years old. But 250 years old is currently the oldest aged orange ruffy that we know about, which makes it the longest lived commercial fish species because these are still caught. Even though they're deep sea fish, you can catch and eat an orange ruffy. Imagine eating a fish that's 250 years old. I wonder what the oldest thing I've eaten is. Chickens are weeks or something, aren't they? that's a great question. I've never eaten a tree. I'm thinking of the things I routinely eat. But then fruit, what would we class as like the lifespan of, a, of an apple? No, that's within the so, less than a so year. So we're talking about something that's had to die for you to eat it. Because that, to me, brings it home. Surely cow. Yeah, it's got to be cow, isn't it? Yeah. Or I've eaten like wild venison and stuff before, which I guess could have been oh, out on the hills for like... For ages, yeah. Who knows? To be honest, reading about this, it's probably some kind of fish that we never knew about. That's true. Trout. Some yeah. 400 year old <laughs> trout. <laughs> a sardine. <laughs> a sardine <laughs> as old as Babylon. <laughs> right, so on from the orange ruffy. Do you know the oldest fish in the sea? I think I do. What do you think it is? I think it's the Greenland shark. Yes. Yeah. So on to the Greenland shark, which is this mysterious shark that lives in the Arctic and North Atlantic waters. And they seem to be in the news every kind of year or so. They do the rounds. (laughs) For for setting a new record. I really like the thought now that in the BBC newsroom, it's like post-it notes of like checking on Palestine, see what's happening in North Korea. And they've just got a little reminder every year, like July 7th, what's the Greenland shark doing? How old have the Greenland sharks got? Ah, another year on the clock. (laughs) Lovely. Tell the people. Remember the figure last year? Add one. Now the weather. (laughs) So the Greenland shark, they take life pretty slowly. Uh, and they're a deep diving species that cruise around about one foot per second. It's a slow swimming fish. Now, how do you work out the age of a Greenland shark? Because they don't have otoliths, that very convenient ear bone that you can age with. Is that because they are a cartilaginous fish and thus do not have ear bones? Correct. Thank you. So they're aged <laughs> by radiocarbon dating the carbon isotopes absorbed in their eye tissue. Science, ladies and gentlemen. Like, we need to just ask things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not great. Although, the study that I'm going to say next, a 2016 study, looked at 28 sharks that had been captured as bycatch. So, science didn't kill these sharks. Okay. Fishing killed these sharks. Well, I mean, if you. Science science... doesn't kill sharks, (laughs) fishing does. So, they were captured as bycatch, and the largest of those 28 sharks that had been captured as bycatch was estimated to be around. 300 to 500 years old. It was estimated to have been born somewhere between 1504 and 1744. And saying something is 300 to 500 years old is one thing. But when you put it in like human terms, 
and say that that shark could have been swimming around since 1504 when who was doing the rounds in 1504 henry the was he around then i don't know this is a nature podcast to think, not a 1504 podcast <laughs> but to think that there was fish like around when the tudors or whatever were doing their things oh i'm sure the tudors had fish i think fish aren't new <laughs> what's this <laughs> mary behold king henry news from the east what the water it hath it hath creatures <laughs> They doth sliver, sliver, sliver and swim. At one foot per second. <laughs> I will eat this beast of the deep. Why, why, I'm hung up on the 1504. Round it down, 1500. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was because the isotope, it's one of those classic things where science can give you, especially when aging things, it can give you very specific range of yeah. dates. I can tell you that this thing was born between 1504 and 1744 mm. on an but, august <laughs> but not exactly when yeah. within that 250 year time frame so fish can get quite old and from there i basically jumped into the age of animals and i thought i'd start with the ones that we're all pretty aware of which is reptiles yep. so reptiles we know they get quite old the guinness world record for the oldest living land animal is held by jonathan a giant tortoise from the seychelles who's 188 years old. Bless you, Jonathan. Bless you. Still doing the rounds, still going strong. Love Jonathan. And then there's also uh, the Tuataras. You heard of a Tuatara? Yeah, they're the lizards that aren't lizards yes, in exactly. New Zealand. They're the really funky species of reptile from New Zealand, yeah, that looks like a lizard but isn't a lizard. But they're like an ancient lineage of Their reptiles. Their own thing. And yeah. There's some, something about them having a third eye, but it's not a third eye. Oh, is that on top of their head? Yeah, I think it's an opening in their skull. So if you look at the skull, it looks as if there's a third eye socket, I think. Because I remember when I was a kid, went to New Zealand and I was like, oh my God, we're going to see the three-eyed lizards. And then I got there and they were completely two-eyed. And I was like, I've been lied to. It's something to do with like Some of the most basic animals that we know about, they have light-sensitive cells basically on the top of their head yeah. that they, they use as rudimentary eyes where they can detect night and day the and not much else. Squiggly shit in the ski. Exactly. In the ski? In the ski. In the ski. In uh, the ski where the fish doth swimmeth. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe the Tuatara's got one of those. But the oldest Tuatara that we know about is Henry. I love how they've all got names. Oh. And he lives in New Zealand. And he was still producing eggs with his 70-year-old mate when he was 111 years old. You started it with Henry and then said he was producing eggs. And I oh, just sorry. had a moment. But no, yeah, so he... He's still fertilising eggs. He's still fertilising eggs. Henry's yes. got it going on. Henry, <laughs> yes, was still fertilising eggs with his 70-year-old mate when he was 111. But now he's 120 and I've not seen any more Henry birth news. I couldn't find any more updates, so maybe it's, maybe it's packed in now. Surely the people I, of New Zealand we deserve... we get a telegram yeah. from New Zealand. Yeah, news from the... <laughs> There's a lot of news from the east in this. <laughs> news from the east. <laughs> Henry has born another mm. 70 children. Another clutch, sire. <laughs> Excellent. Send my regards to Henry. Question. Yes. Do you have anything on either crocodiles or snakes? I don't. It's, I wonder. I briefly sketched over reptiles because I thought everyone knows that they're old. Actually, I don't know how old snakes can get to. The big one's probably quite old. I was going to say the other. I bet it's some weird... Like there's a garter snake in Finland that's 203 or yeah. something. That's called Jamie. Yeah, well, Sven or something. Sven. It's up there, yeah. <laughs> that's what makes it even more amazing. It's called Jamie. Jamie Smith. 
Jamie's the finished garter snake. Pleasure. <laughs>So, from reptiles to reptiles with wings, birds. Let's play a little game with the birds. Rather than me just telling you, what do you think the life expectancy is of something like a robin? Um, maybe five years if it's doing good. Yeah, you're pretty right. The life expectancy of a robin is two years, mm. but that's because there is a really high mortality rate in the first year of life because being a baby bird, Oh, so the average sucks. pulls it down. So it right. pulls it down. So the average life expectancy of a robin is somewhere between 1.1 to 2 years. However, once it's past its first year, it can expect to live longer. The mm. oldest robin in the wild reached 19 years of age, Oh, which is pretty good. How do we know the age of a robin? Bird rings. Oh, okay. So, so this. So, hang on. The fish are going to be looking at the birds and thinking, "How dare those hu- these humans have invented a system where they politely attach little things to the, set them on their way. They live their life and then they check in on them. And the fish are like, we're getting our heads cut open, tissues taken from our eyes. We're just living at the bottom of the sea, going about one foot a second. That's, that's a very valid point. And I think on behalf of the fish, I think you've raised an excellent topic that does need addressing. Fish ringing movement. For anyone who doesn't know, we should. I think we should explain that bird ringing is the process where you fit little metal rings to birds' legs that have got an individual um, number on them, which stays with that bird throughout its life. So if you ring it when it's a little chick in the nest, it keeps that ring until it's, in the case of this robin, 19 years old. And you can recatch that bird and you can read its number and you can say, oh, that was the same robin that, that I ringed 19 years ago. So it's a way of, of identifying them as individuals. I think we are doing that with things like sharks and things now, but they tend to be satellite trackers that bob up after a while. They detach and they bob up onto the surface of the water and you get the data back. I don't think we're... There's an app you can get on your phone which is like plugged into the shark tracking network and you can just see where all the sharks in the world are swimming. Well, not like oh, all, all the, the, that would uh, be helpful if you were going swimming. All the tracked ones. And they've all they've got names as well. It's like, oh, Sheila's visiting Miami again. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. So, yeah, Robin's... Two years, but once they're once they're past their first year of life, then they can live four or five years. But what you often get with robins is you get people saying that they've had the same robin in their garden for like ten years in a row or whatever. But it's probably not the same robin. It's five different robins have been coming to your garden rather than just the one over all that time. Do they keep territories in any kind of generational sense? Would it maybe be the same family of robins? No, or not, not necessarily family because they're not like you know, like a dynasty of robins yeah, yeah, in a yeah, garden. Yeah, because yeah. if their territory turnover must be fairly quick if they're only living about two years. Yeah, so when they have their chicks, so they have their chicks, they raise them, the adults, until they become independent, and then they kick them out, and then it becomes like every robin for himself, and they're all fighting or whatever. Those chicks may, depending on the quality of the habitat and how the territories are taken around them, they may disperse quite far. So I ringed a robin a few years ago now that was, uh, I ringed it in August and it was recaptured. It wasn't actually recaptured. It was brought in dead to somebody's house by a cat Um, (laughs) a few months later in North Wales. So it went from where I ringed it in North Derbyshire into Wales. So that's 
a fair old trek for the robin. So a couple rob- hundred miles. Yeah, so robins do actually move a lot more than people think, and wow. especially yes. in like uh, Scandinavia, you get big migrations of robins. And in certain parts of northern Europe, robins are seen to them like swallows are seen to us. So when the swallow arrives, it's like, oh, spring's here. Oh. So certain parts of northern Europe, that's when the robin arrives back because they don't hang around all year because it gets so cold. Mm-hmm. So they are actually quite migratory, like further north of their range. They can come down when it gets colder and then they go back up. Um, so we do get an influx of birds over from Scandinavia through the winter. So that can kind of really mess up the whole territory mm. thing, jumble mm. it up a little bit. But if a robin in your garden dies, then it's going to be very quickly replaced mm. by another robin. And unless it's marked, you've got no way of knowing if it's the same robin or not. It could be its chicks, but chances are probably not. Yeah. The parent's going to have to be alive for the chicks to get old enough to disperse. Yeah. So it's probably then gone some distance. Some distance than the parent, yeah. Because okay. the chance the chances are robins are a pretty common species and even if it went into say the surrounding territories, likelihood is all those are going to be taken by robins because there's going to because there's just so many robins. So they mm. probably have to range a fair bit to actually settle down and find mm-hmm. find a territory. Um and that kind of lifespan of the robin continues across pretty much all garden birds. Things like blue tits are about the same. But the oldest blue tit was 21 years old. The oldest ringed blue tit, which is mad. That's bonkers. What about a crow? How old do you think a crow gets to? Crow. Average. 12. Four. Four years old for a crow. Swan? 12. 10. You can't just say 12 for everything. (laughs) But 10. I fear you've seen my system. (laughs) 10 for swans. And birds of prey. 12. (laughs) Birds of prey generally... Well, depending on the bird, depends how long it can live. But the interesting thing about birds of prey is that they have a huge mortality rate when they're younger. Birds of prey, things like sparrowhawks, only about a third of them will actually make it through to becoming adults. Life's hard if you've got to chase down and hunt your food and you can't just rely on popping up to a bird feeder or whatever. Yeah. I wonder what the... There's obviously a link with size and a link with how hard your life is. Yes. So on that note, actually, so talking about little small songbirds, they have a much, much smaller life expectancy in temperate regions where we have seasons rather than the tropics. So if you take a robin sized bird that lives in the Amazon, it's going to live for longer than the robin is. Yeah. But that's because it's not dealing with winter. The great leveller. To compensate for that, birds like robins, they might only breed once. If they live for two years, they might only breed once or twice. So to offset the fact they're not going to live very long, they have a nest that has seven, eight chicks in it. Whereas in the tropics, those birds generally only have maybe like a couple of eggs per season because they can bank on the fact that they're going to live for longer. That they're going to be here next year. Yeah, exactly. So it, it evens itself out. So there's a lot at play when it comes to life expectancy, but obviously having to go through something like a winter and if you're a migratory species, yeah. that throws in a whole load of other challenges. Yeah. But in the tropics, life's pretty... That's pretty swell. There's always food around. Things are coming into fruit at different times. You don't have to go through a spell where it's cold and dark. A lot more stuff trying to kill you, though. Yeah, everything, really. Yeah. In the game of robin-sized bird versus spider in the UK, (laughs) robin wins every time. In the game of robin-sized bird versus spider in the tropics, (laughs) it tips. (laughs) That's very true. Yeah, robin-sized bird versus... Basically anything anything. without, without a backbone. Yeah. Up here, it's a very one-sided conquest. But in the tropics, it's where the real heavyweight invertebrates show up. Yeah. God, they do well, don't they? To have a decent lifespan. Oldest confirmed wild bird in the world. 
12. 70. Damn. She's got a albatross. Ne- she's got a name. Wisdom, the Laysan albatross. Oh, yes. Who breeds on Midway Atoll in the North Pacific. She's 70 years old and still laying eggs. She was ringed at about five years old. She should hook up with the Tuatara. He's still fertilizing eggs. Yeah, I'd like to see what that would look like. Flying three-eyed Jesus. <laughs> so Wisdom is the oldest confirmed wild bird, but not the oldest bird that we know about. The oldest bird that we know about are, of course, birds in captivity, because you take away all the predator pressure and having to find food and all that kind of stuff. Is it a parrot? The top five oldest birds ever recorded are all captive parrots. Right. And I can give you a rundown of the Are top any of five. them African greys? No. Ah, because they're always the ones that can talk the most. I th- I yeah. If there's a... I think they're cursed with knowledge. <laughs> and they, they, they have to pay for that by with an early death compared to some of these other parrots. So let's have a little rundown of some of the oldest parrots. So we'll start with Cookie, the pink cockatoo, who died in 2016, aged 83 years old. Good effort, Cookie. Then there's Poncho, the green-winged macaw, who had a long Hollywood career... Oh. Including appearances in Ace of Ventura and Dr. Doolittle. Those are real high-ticket films for a parrot. She retired to the UK and was 92 in 2018, and I couldn't see any reference that she was dead. So I'm assuming that hopefully 90... she's 94. We're going up. We're starting at five. We're starting at five and going up. Oh, I was like, wow, 88, but okay. No, we're going up. And what was the 92-year-old Hollywood star of the silver screen? <laughs> what was her name? Yeah. Poncho. Oh, Poncho, the green wing macaw. So she was, you know, a macaw being the massive ones with the long tails. Then we go to Tasmania. Of course. And we meet Fred, the sulfur-crested cockatoo, who is at least 105 years old, but maybe older. Oh. And he's still kicking around. So the zoo that he's held in in Tasmania, they celebrated his 100th birthday five years ago. Yep. But they waited until they knew for sure he was 100, but he he was probably kicking around a bit earlier. So he was probably already 100, but they waited until they could guarantee that he was 100 years old. And he's still going now, so he's now 105 years old. Wow. Then, still climbing, we've got Charlie, who's a blue and gold macaw from England that allegedly used to belong to Winston Churchill. Wow. And apparently spews anti-Nazi curses that legend says she picked up from Churchill. What kind of anti I mean, like, there's only really one, but what is she saying? I don't know. I couldn't find any record of any what quotes. Exactly. Any quotes. Charlie, the blue and gold McCall. Fuck the Nazis. Yeah. Those bloody ones <laughs> over there. <laughs> she was allegedly 114 in 2014 which is the last record that I could find. But there is some debate about Charlie and her backstory and whether Winston Churchill was involved and whether she is really 114. So at number two, Charlie's a bit of a, needs some investigation. But the oldest bird is a sulfur-crested cockatoo who lived in Australia called Cocky Bennett and died at the age, a confirmed age of 120 years old. Wow. Mad, isn't it? I don't know why it struck me so much thinking about birds being that old and that a parrot could live for over a hundred years. I've always liked the idea of having a parrot that sits on your shoulder and chats and, mm. you know, it's a pretty cool thing. But now, if I bought a parrot now that could live a hundred years, yeah, that parrot's living longer than I am. Yeah. Well, what's the oldest human that's ever lived? I think there's someone that's like 122 or something like that. Oh, okay. So we're, we're level pegging in a sense with parrots. I think it's pretty close. Yeah. I think the average parrot and the average human lifespan can't be. But then, I mean, in captivity, we're talking, of course. But I mean, all humans. 
our own captivity. captivity. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns out there was a lot more to talk about age than we could fit in one episode. So we'll be back next time to pick up this chat after we've done our animal fights. Okay, now it's time for the segment where we take an animal, we pit it against Roddy, and he tells us how many of said animal he can fight off. Now, as always, the animals have been suggested by dear people on Instagram who didn't know that they were putting these animals up for a battle to the death with Roddy. But today's is from someone on Instagram who, I'll be honest, I don't know their real name, but their Instagram name is Nebazanilva. Sorry if I've pronounced that horribly wrong. But I do know, or I think I know, that they're Spanish. And this species that we're going to be talking, (laughs) the animal that we're going to be talking about is the asp. Now, the asp is a viper species found in southwestern Europe that reach about 65 to 85 centimetres. Now, think similar to an adder in its colour and its appearance, olive brownie with strong markings on it. But, of course, the weapon here is venom. And the Mm. venom is more potent than adders. This is the species, if you know anything about history that was supposedly used to assassinate the Egyptian queen Cleopatra. And bites from this species are more severe than the European adder. Not only can they be very painful, but also about 4% of all untreated bites are fatal. Now, the symptoms from envenomation are rapidly spreading acute pain and can, within a few hours, lead to severe hemorrhagic necrosis. Vision may be severely impaired, most likely due to the degradation of blood and blood vessels in the eyes. So, Roddy Shaw, how many asps is too many asps? Now, this, I reckon, is a real case of blaze of glory. Yeah. Because the moment it goes south, it sounds like it's game over. It's not just a scratch. It's not this. It's really serious consequences here. Yeah. I think it's good to take into account, again, terrain. And my thinking is I don't want them able to climb anything. Yeah, I only want them on ground level. I don't want to have to be dodging blows to the face, to the upper body. And so I'm thinking school gym. School gym. School, school gym. gym's a good, a good battleground. Empty school gym. Very open. Very you can see everyone coming. Clean, hard floor. Yeah. And... I think it's set the bar high because, again, it's, it's, they're glass cannons. They're all offense with zero defense. Yeah. Tiny things, really. I don't think it's a snake you have to worry about until the last second. Yeah. I'm going to wager like 100. I think. Because I, I think you're just stomping. I think you're going to need some sturdy footwear. Yep. Steel toes. Steel toes. Yep. Long trousers, because if they bite you, like you say, as soon as they bite you, the chances are it's game over. Now, one thing I want to throw in is that I have, well, not first-hand experience, but kind of second-hand experience of just how quick these things can strike. Not the asp in particular, but adders, because once I was on a school trip to the Yorkshire Moors, uh, a university trip to the Yorkshire Moors, and we were told, if you see any snakes, don't try and touch them, because they're probably adders. Sure. We all go out and we do our transects on the moors and we get back on the bus and I'm sat in one row on the coach and the guy behind me is sweating quite profusely and his mate who sat next to him is laughing quite a lot. So I turn around and I'm like, what's up? And his mate goes, he's been bitten by a snake. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy who's sweating goes, I've never seen one move so fast in my entire life. (laughs) He's like, I saw it curled up in the heather. And I just went to like grab its head like Steve Irwin did. 
And he went, I've never seen an animal move so quick. <laughs> and you could see on his finger were the two puncture marks, the classic snake puncture marks. And his hand was swelling. His hand was huge. And he was terrified of going and telling the lecturer who'd taken us out, the professor, because we'd been explicitly told not to touch them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the bus back to the um, hotel that we were staying at was maybe like 20 minutes or so. When we got off the bus, he couldn't hide it. He was sweating profusely. His hand was now massive. And he had to go up to the... He went up to the um, professor and he pretended he'd been stung by a wasp. And the professor immediately looked at his finger and saw the two puncture marks and went, you've tried to pick up a snake. It was you? two wasps next to each <laughs> other, sir. <laughs> and he had to go He had to go to hospital. And luckily he was fine because adders, they're, they're, venom is only really dangerous to small children or old frail people. But I just want to throw that in there, that these are lightning fast. Yeah, and if you go with the hands... Oh, no. You can't, yeah, you can't outmaneuver these. So good, sturdy boots, long trousers, I think is a good, I think I think about 100 you could probably get away with. It's, it's not even that. What this has taught us is school gym. It had the heather advantage. Home field, you've got to take that away. You've got to take the animals off their home turf. 